Somewhere within arm's reach of where you're sitting right now is a Bible. If you didn't bring yours from home, would you open up with me to John chapter 4? And you can find that on page 888, 888, John chapter 4. If you're watching at home, pause this video right now, go grab your own Bible. And we're going to walk through the majority of this text together. If you're here in the room, you got a bulletin, it's printed there for you. But there's something different about feeling the pages on your fingers and hearing the rustle, looking at the text for yourself. So I want to encourage you to open up a Bible to John chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me tell you this story. Uh, our family flew to Florida Christmas Day and visited my in-laws for a few days. And one morning when we were there, I was up early, it's about six, uh, like the day after New Year's Day, and everybody else was asleep. And so I got up and took a walk a couple of blocks to get a cup of coffee. And I was walking down Gulf Boulevard there in Indian Rocks Beach and passed a couple of people who were walking down the sidewalk the other day, uh, the other way, and then saw a guy who was standing. I could see him from about a block away, and I wasn't sure if it was a person or a statue or not because he was standing really still in sort of this strange position. And I got up to him, and he still hadn't moved a muscle, and I acknowledged his presence and said hi and uh, you know really kind of wanted to get my cup of coffee and he said something to me over my shoulder and I couldn't help but politely kind of go back and say hello and ask what was going on and introduce myself and as it turned out this guy as I started to talk to him seemed to be very out of place uh, he had a sticker on for a local hospital where our youngest son Jude was born. I knew where that was, you know, about five or so miles away from where we were standing. You know, the sun had just come up. It was early, and I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm just really tired. I said, well, where are you coming from? He said, Clearwater. I said, well, did you, have you been walking? He said, yeah. I said, well, where are you headed? He said, well, I'm trying to get home. I said, well, where's your home? And he said, it's, it's in Clearwater, which again was the other direction from where we were standing. I said, well, do you, can I call you a cab? Can I help you get there? And I said, do you have some money? He said, yeah. I said, do you have a phone? He said, yeah. And I said, okay, let me call you a cab. You know, I pulled out my phone, 727. You know, by the way, if you ever get a phone call from me and it's got a weird area code, a Florida number, I'm not trying to ask you about your car warranty. It's me, your pastor, <laughs> calling you from Florida. Punch in the number for the cab, 727-777-7777. And I said, okay, if you can stay right here at this intersection next to this restaurant, a cab's going to be here in maybe 10 minutes. He said, okay, thanks. I said, I think you ought to sit down. He said, no, I don't want to sit down. I said, are you all right? He said, yeah. He said, you can go. I said, all right. So I start walking to the coffee shop, get about 100 yards down the street. And I called my mother-in-law, and she's a registered nurse. And I said, Jamie, here's what happened. Did I do the right thing? You know, here's the situation for this guy. And she said, you know, I think, let, just to be safe, why don't you call 911, and I'll jump in my car, and I'll be right over there. So I call 911, and uh, before I'm on the phone, 30 seconds, so I'm kind of laying out the situation, a sheriff's deputy has already pulled up and says, are you the person who called 911? I said, yeah. He said, okay. And he starts talking to the person and this gentleman. And he says, uh, talks to him for a minute, comes back over to me and says, hey, you know, I think we're going to get him checked out. There's a fire station around the corner. They're going to come over just to be sure. Uh, we've got your number. If we need anything, we'll call you, but you're free to go. I said, okay, all right. 
So I start walking back to the coffee shop to get my cup of coffee, and my mother-in-law pulls up, and she says, everything okay? And I fill her in the situation. She said, yeah. And I said, yeah, I'm free to go. And she said, oh, well, great. And she said, you know, it's January. I used to walk the beach all the time, every day, and it's, you know, I want to start doing that again. Do you want to walk the beach with me? And I paused, because I kind of wanted my cup of coffee. <laughs> I said, sure, uh, we walked a couple miles over a couple hours, and that was way better than what I thought I needed that day. I did something this year that I've never done before because of that experience and a couple other reasons that I'm happy to tell you about if you want to know, but I chose a word for the year for myself. I always thought it was kind of hokey, but I thought, you know, this year, and that word for me this year is interruptible because that's really hard for me. You know, the traditional way that people have said forever, the, the traditional way in which we change ourselves is we exercise our mind and our reason over our emotions and we make better choices, we suppress our feelings and we gut it out. Maybe we set a resolution or a goal, maybe we don't, but or maybe we, we track our habits and we start to be a better person. That's how we change. The emerging priority is not that, not mind over emotions, but it's flipped the script and said that really it's our emotions that are most important, and what we need to do is go from the outside to the inside and discover who we really are and our deepest longings and tap into them and become the person that we long to be or the person that we've always kind of known we were, but now we're finally realizing is the person that we're destined to become. And what the scriptures show us instead the gospel is neither head nor heart. It is something else entirely. And the way that God changes us through his grace by the work of the Holy Spirit is something else entirely. That's exactly what we find right here in John chapter 4. We meet a woman who is interrupted by Jesus. And, and the encounter that she has with him changes the trajectory of her eternity. I'd like to look closely at John chapter 4 over the next few minutes together. And, and we're going to see something very clearly in this text, the, her problem. She thinks she has one, but there's something else that she truly and deeply needs. That's what we'll do first, her problem, the one we find here in the text. And then secondly... If you will allow me, we will look closely at our problem, the one that we find here in this room. That's true about every person in this room. And the solution, thirdly, finally, that only Jesus can bring, the change that the work of his Holy Spirit does through his death and resurrection, and because we belong to him by grace. So first, her problem, our problem, and then finally, the change that Jesus brings in her and in us. Let's look first at her problem. Hope you still have your Bible open. After all that, let's start in verse 1. We're going to work all the way through the first 30 verses of this text together. Verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, <clears throat> he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, 
And he had to pass through Samaria. That detail is going to be important in a minute. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Let's pause just real quickly. John is rooting these events in history, in geography. This is a real place at a real point in time connected to what had happened centuries earlier. And if you were one of John's original readers, you'd go, oh, I know where that was. Let's keep reading verse 6. Uh, So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's noon. Can you picture Jesus tired from walking? The distance from Jerusalem where he has been to Sychar where he is is about 30 miles. This is several long days walk by foot. He's tired. It's hot. The sun is high. He's thirsty. Verse 7. The woman... Or there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Let's pause right there. Neither one of them should be here. I mean, for the woman, she's there in the middle of the day, drawing water likely by herself at a point in time when other people would come to draw water when it was less hot. She's probably there on her own to avoid the people around her. This is the first clue that John was giving us about things we're going to read later about her history and her past. She shouldn't be there, and Jesus shouldn't be there. Let me show you this map. You see the yellow part in the middle. Samaria is that region. It's like a county. Judea is a county. Kind of imagine that. Galilee's in the north. And so Jesus, who's been again in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast as his ministry begins, is headed north. You can see there. And you can see that gray dotted line on the side. Because of the great animosity, the social and political and theological rift between these two groups of people, the Samaritans and the Jews, that gray dotted line describes the route that Jews would take to walk around Samaria to get to Galilee. Jesus goes through it. You see that green line in the middle. He shouldn't be there because of the political rift, the social rift that's here too, that just between these two people, that Jesus, as a single man, wouldn't be caught talking to a single woman in public who he wasn't related to. Gender-wise, there's a rift. Morally, there's a rift here because of her past. Neither one of them should be here. They're going to talk about water in just a moment as our text continues. Excuse me. And by the time we get to the end of this text, as Jesus is describing water to her, as far as she knows, the water that Jesus has to offer her is is physical. Let's read verse 10. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Isn't this great irony here? She has no idea that he is greater than her father, you know, Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. As far as she knows, it's physical water. Won't be thirsty, don't have to come back here, stay by myself, no one's going to notice me. And Jesus says to her, in the section that comes next, in order to talk about this living water, we have to get personal. It seems like a non sequitur. seems like he's changing the subject to something else entirely. He's about to talk about her husband's. But really, the truth is, in order to receive the living water, she has to get personal. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And she does the same thing, seemingly. She changes the subject back on him. She says, I don't want to get personal. Why don't we talk about theology instead? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. If you look closely at the Greek here, this is the first I am statement in John's gospel. I am the one who is speaking to you. You know, we've got I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, and the life, all those good I am statements of John. You look closely. This is really the first one here. It's kind of hard to tell as it's translated into English here. Just then, verse 27, his disciples come back. You know, is it no accident? You know, John, who's recording this, remembers this. He runs up. That just at this moment, he, they show up. They're marveling that they're talking, uh, that he's talking to this woman. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The thing that brought her there is the very thing that she leaves behind and goes back to the people that she was trying to avoid because she has had this encounter with Jesus. And she knows that perhaps what he's offering her is something more than physical by this point of their conversation. She needs something deeper and to some degree, as far as she can tell at this point, Jesus is part of the solution. Her problem is that she thinks she needs one thing, but in reality, she needs something different. Not something on the surface, not something physical, it's something deeper on the surface, or under the surface. That's her problem. Let's move now from her problem to ours. In order to do that, I'd like to do some problems, some math problems. Let's do some algebra together. Would you like to do that with me? Do you have a choice? <laughs> nope. No, you don't. All right, let's solve for x. You ready? All right, so think back, you know, algebra one, whatever you got to do, 
7 plus x equals 9. Everybody together, x equals 2. That's right. All right, that's the first one. Second one's a little trickier. x times 7 equals 0. Everybody together, x equals 0. All right, because you have to remember that anything times 0 equals 0. All right, that's the second one. Here's the third one. A little trickier. There's another rule you've got to remember to solve. This one, negative 15 plus minus 5x equals 0. Everybody together, x equals minus 3. About half of you got that one, so congratulations. Because you have to remember the rule that any negative number times another negative number is a positive number, positive 15, minus 3 times minus 5, combine that with negative 15 equals 0. I bet you didn't know you were going to come to church and do math today, so good for you. What the scriptures show us is that we are always solving for X, that in every human heart, there's something that we're adding to Jesus to be happy. That no matter what we may say we believe about him, because as John Calvin says, the human heart is an idol factory. That we're constantly in the process of looking to created things and stacking them next to our creator. For our worth and our significance, our meaning and our identity, and they may be good things. Sometimes what happens along the way is we turn them into ultimate things. There's a lot of good work that's been done by Christian theologians and counselors who have said that at the core there are four things that we stack next to Jesus that are idols, things we look to really come down to these four things. And I want to camp for a moment in this. I want to invite you to consider that this may not just be the woman at the wells problem, that this may be a human problem, one that we find here in the room that's true about every human heart, no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus or not, whether you are one or not. This is true of every human being on earth. The first one is approval. That our longing for affection, our longing to measure up to the people in our life who matter to us, and the things we do, the length that we will go to live up to their standards for ourselves, or for that matter, our own standards for ourselves. And then there's comfort. The temptation that we give into, the pleasure we seek, the things that we long for, the security that we think we need to have a comfortable life, the things that we accumulate, approval and comfort and power. I mean, if you pay attention to the way in which you get angry and the things that make you puffed up, you know, pride is something that we all ought to recognized by default is a problem for us because by nature it's hidden it's hard to see our own pride the the ways in which we think well how could they or the ways in which we think we're better than the people around us approval comfort power and control the things that make us anxious and our need to control the people around us or for that matter ourselves are prone to to be perfectionists, to have everything together, 
whether that's outside us or inside us. To have the, the right, a nice house that's well put together. I'll, I'll challenge you in this and say, it's not whether or not these things apply to you. It's really in what order these four things apply to you. It can be so easy to look at this list and say, well, that, maybe that was the woman's problem going back to the well, and you know, she was thirsty, she, whatever she longed for, whatever these men were for her, security or happiness or affection, whatever, that's her problem, but not mine. How do you know that these things are a problem for you? Well, let me just give you a couple of filter questions. Where does your time go? And where does your mind wander? And what are the things that are cycling through your head as you're laying in bed at night? Where does your money go most effortlessly? And what are the things that make you upset? You can tell by looking at your anger and your fear. What are the things that bring you the greatest joy, good things that perhaps when you experience them, somehow, whether you've realized it or not, subconsciously, you've turned them into ultimate things? I made a list like this. I wrote it down on a piece of paper I wrote down these four things, and then I started thinking about the people in my life and the way that I can react and the circumstances that I react to. And I started making a list of things underneath each of these four things. And you know what I started to realize? That I have a way bigger problem with all these four things than I thought I did. It's not if. It's really in which order these four things are most important to you. Our problem is that we all have a thirst, a set of longings, and things that we're stacking next to Jesus and looking to to fill our hearts. It's not just her problem. If you are willing to admit it, it is your problem and it is mine. So what do we do? You know, we could do the spiritual version of trying to make a resolution to repent, to exercise our reason and our mind and to make a list and to say, you know, there are things that I need to do to stop and things that I need to do to start. And we could start trying harder. And that matters. We ought to do that. And we can go inside and we can look deeply at our heart and say, what is it about me that longs for those things? And we can talk to Christian counselors and we, we can do the good work of, of examining our family of origin and the values and the dynamics of the community in which we grew up and to say, to some degree, I'm shaped by that. But we have to admit at the same time, whether we do that or not, whether we do both of those things or not, that the problem is not just out there, the problem is in here. You've got to admit first that you've got a thirst. Psalm 63 
It's been such a comfort for me. I think back in August, I came across this psalm and it jumped off the page for me in a brand new way. And I know that it's in August because I wrote that down in the margin of this Bible. This is my devotional Bible, not my nice fancy one that I normally preach one. Uh, This is my Bible that I use at home in the mornings. And I wrote that down. Let me show you how Psalm 63 begins. This is a picture from this Bible right here. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. You can see that note there? I put it right next to that. In all of my idols, in all of my longings, what I'm really thirsting for and searching for is Jesus. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Can you admit that you've got a thirst? A deep longing that you're seeking in Jesus, but also seeking in a bunch of other things. That's the way the psalm begins. The key, you can jump down a couple of verses in Psalm 63, verse 5. The psalmist says, and this is David who's praying this, and he says, My soul will be satisfied, as with fat and rich food, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, when I remember you and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. And you can see uh, the kind of looks like a scribble over there on the right side. Uh, that's the Hebrew word Hagah, and Hebrew. Uh, word Hagah is the English word for meditate that we find throughout the Old Testament. And the sense of the word Hagah is like a cow. You remember how many stomachs a cow has? Four. Fun fact for you. All right, so we're doing uh, arithmetic and we're doing biology in today's sermon. Isn't that fun? Four stomachs. And you, as you remember, the way a cow eats is it digests its food, moves from one stomach, chews it, goes back to the next stomach. Choose it, goes back to kind of over and over and over again. That's the same Hebrew sense of the word Haggad that's here in this Psalm 63, verse 5 and 6, where it says, when I remember you, when I meditate on you over and over and over again. And here's the way the psalmist concludes in verse 8. We jump down a little further. The way it lands, he says, my soul has a longing. My soul is satisfied when I do this. And therefore, verse 8, my soul clings to you. You can see there the note I wrote that in baptism, you cling to me forever. Do you have a thirst? Yeah. Can it be satisfied? Yeah. How? By meditating on him in the watches of the night or in the morning when the sun is up. But what do you meditate on? I mean, we can't miss that. You know, do we just meditate on the fact that God loves us in sort of some sort of abstract way? You know, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, can you meditate on that? Sure, but how do you bring that from your head to your heart so that it moves from audio to video so that it quenches your thirst and satisfies your soul? What are you going to meditate on? I don't think it's any accident that in John's gospel, as he's recording the very last words of Jesus from the cross, that in John chapter 19, he writes down, he remembered because he was there, that Jesus said the words, I thirst. That Jesus on the cross experiences cosmic 
thirst. Dryness, not just of the mouth, but emptiness of the soul. You got to see, you got to meditate on what Jesus lost for you. That he who had the smile, the affection of God the Father, lost the approval of his family and his friends, was forsaken by his Father himself simply to have you. And he says about you, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you with you, I am well pleased. The one who lost the comfort of heaven, who set it aside, who walked this earth and said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head, who was crucified in agony and and pain on the cross for you. And he says, come to me, all you who are weak and weary, and you will find rest. The one who set aside his power and lost control, who was pinned to a cross, who says, my power is made perfect in weakness, and my grace is sufficient for you. The one who invites you to him, who says shortly after his encounter with a woman in John chapter 4, who says in John chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, as you meditate on his word, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Meditate on that, what he lost for you, and you can leave your jar behind. And approval will be just approval, whether you have it or not. And comfort and power and control, whether you have those things or not, they will just be power and comfort and control because you have the one who has you. And you're his forever. You can leave your jar behind. Now, one more thing before we close. Let's go back to Florida. Some of you are wondering right now, so what happened to the guy who you ran into on the street? And the truth is, I don't know. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint you. I mean, I did as much as I could and maybe trust that I was there for some reason, the Holy Spirit ordained, you know, things like that don't magically happen to me ever. But maybe God brought me there for that time in that place. I don't know. But on one of the days that we were there, we drove our kids by our house that we used to live in. This is my first house I bought right before I started dating Jackie. I proposed to her on her birthday in that house. We brought our first son, Adam, home from the hospital to that house. And we drove by down our old street, and as we pulled up, we could see that the house was very different. The plants that I had planted and watered were bigger. The the, the front door was a different color. I don't know what they were thinking. Lime green, I don't know, but it's Florida, so who knows. There was a planter between two palm trees that I had in the front yard that they had taken out that was now covered with grass. The house looked different. Now, every day that I lived there, those things, those plants were growing, but I couldn't notice the difference because it was just, you know, living there every day. 
You know, maybe you've done that. Maybe you've uh, driven by one of your old houses. Maybe you look at a picture of your, the house that you're living right now, and it's, oh yeah, that was before we planted that tree, or that's when those plants, those bushes in the front were so small. It looks different. You don't notice the change until you look back. My friends, it's the very same thing in this very room. You come up for bread and wine every other week. Here, you open your hand. It seems quite ordinary. The body and blood of Jesus, you don't notice the difference in your life. And you come back to the waters of baptism in the morning and the, way, the number of times that we cross ourselves that connect us to our baptism when God began the journey, when he planted faith in our hearts and that he's been watering it in the baptism that reconnects and resets our identity as sons and daughters every day. You're just going about your business every morning. You open the scriptures, you do the good work, you read Psalm 63, you follow along in this new reading plan that we're kind of turning the corner in on February 14th in the New Testament. You, doesn't, you can't notice the difference in the moment, but when you look back, Maybe you do. You say, you know, I used to react that way, but now I don't. And that used to matter a whole lot more to me, but I guess now it really doesn't. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. Not a change that you need to produce in yourself. And not a change that you can create on your own but one that God does in you through these physical, tangible means. Trust him. Return to his living water today. And do that again tomorrow, and you will, your life will never be the same. In the name of Jesus, crucified and risen for you and for me. Amen.